This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host, researcher and entrepreneur, Ollie Tikkanen. Welcome back, everyone. This is our second recording with Jesse Cook. And in the first part, we were talking about sleep. What is sleep? How do we measure sleep? Uh, very interesting discussions about commercial and, and scientific lab measurement devices and what are the strengths, limitations, applications, and also future predictions super interesting episode if you haven't listened yet i i I really recommend this uh checking it out and in this episode we are going to talk about sleep disorders hypersomnias and and other things so jesse should we start with the sleep disorders i think our listeners are not experts so you can start with the with the basics Fair enough. And uh, thank you all for tuning into part two here. And I hope I, I did a decent job in part one. And I'm happy to talk again. If, if you didn't do part one, I just wanted to share that I am a, um, I'm a trainee right now in clinical psychology, pursuing a specialty in behavioral sleep medicine. So a lot of the work that I do in my training is focused on sleep problems and sleep disorders. And um, largely, it's really important because one, Sleep disorders are extremely common in our modern society and have massive impact on one's psychosocial functioning. And I really want to emphasize um, the psychological component of this because there's an intimate bidirectional relationship between sleep disorders and psychiatric conditions, especially mood disorders like depression, bipolar, and anxiety, things like that. Well, anxiety is not a mood disorder, but, um, but those types of disorders as well. And that's where I found myself initially in research was this intersection of mental health and sleep. Uh, But I've since expanded to focus on something called idiopathic hypersomnia, which we'll talk about in a bit. What I first think is is kind of a nice foundational uh, starting point is just to talk about sleep problems globally. Um, We actually have a high prevalence of sleep problems in our society that are either undiagnosed sleep disorders or are just sleep problems. And we'll get into the distinction here in a second. But you can think of a sleep problem as difficulty falling asleep, difficulty staying asleep, difficulty returning to sleep, having poor sleep quality, have non-restorative sleep, or I like to think of it as maybe not a sleep problem, but a consequence of poor sleep, which is daytime sleepiness. And generally speaking, things like daytime sleepiness or poor sleep quality affect upwards to 30 to 40% of the population at any given time. Now, these are sleep problems. These are usually an indicator that there is an existing sleep disorder. Um, and oftentimes, unfortunately, the most common insuffi- or the most common sleep disorder in our society, and I find it unfortunate that we had to even create a classifier for this, is insufficient sleep syndrome, where people are experiencing uh, the consequences of um, or experiences sleep problems largely because they're not able to prioritize sleep of sufficient duration. There's nothing that's interfering with their difficulty falling asleep 
are maintaining sleep or returning to sleep, and there's nothing interfering with their sleep quality during sleep. It's the ability to prioritize sleep of sufficient duration. And here in uh, America, the National Sleep Foundation recommends that for a kind of young to middle-aged adult, it is recommended that seven to nine hours of total sleep time across a 24-hour period uh, is healthy. Now, I emphasize across a 24-hour period because cultures will differ there on how they want to allocate their sleep, right? Some have a kind of afternoon siesta, things like that. Here in kind of America, that's less common, and we try and uh, bulk it all together into one nocturnal period uh, to function on our nine-to-five lifestyles, things like that. But I also want to emphasize that's total sleep time. And in part one, I mentioned that wake is inevitable during sleep. Healthy sleep involves some time to fall asleep. Healthy sleep recognizes that there'll be some wake during our sleep period. So that means we actually have to budget more time than that in our sleep opportunity window. The time in bed that we're actively trying to sleep, not necessarily the time in bed that I'm laying there watching TV to try and fall asleep, right? Or haven't really initiated sleep, but are just watching TV relaxing in bed. But the time we're actively trying to sleep. And so if I'm trying to capture the seven and a half hours of sleep that Jesse has found is necessary for him, that means I'm budgeting at least eight or 8.25 hours to capture that amount of sleep duration that fits within the healthy recommendations. People with insufficient sleep syndrome, due to external demands, largely it's often occupational or academic or uh, personal as far as parenting, are unable to budget that amount of time. And when I'm working with people like that, or if that's you out there and you're struggling to prioritize sleep of sufficient duration, my recommendation is to find your reason why. What is going to be your motivating factor that is going to prioritize sleep health? It can be viewed as a gift to yourself in the short term and certainly in the long term. But oftentimes that's not enough for people to make these changes and behavioral change is hard. But this one is really important. So I suggest trying to find your why, whether that is to be able to be uh, less irritable with your partner or to have less risk for injury so that you can train every day or whatever it may be, or just be your best version of yourself. That's the jumping off point. So insufficient sleep syndrome, I think is a terrible classifier, but it exists as a sleep disorder. Um, When we start thinking about sleep disorders, they Invite in the problem, such as sleep initiation or sleep maintenance, but the difference when is a problem is often not consistent across nights, so they're transient or acute, and they often don't necessarily impair one's functionality. Generally speaking, our classifiers uh, becomes a disorder based on the frequency of the situation, whether it's three, four, five, six times a week and the magnitude of impact that it has on one's functionality, whether it causes dysfunction. And sure, we can hem and haw about whether that's a great way to classify a clinical disorder, but that's kind of how things operate. So insomnia is a really, really common disorder, and it embraces three different sleep problems. One is the difficulty falling asleep, so sleep initiation. One is the difficulty maintaining sleep. That could either be frequent arousals, Or it could be one prolonged arousal and a difficulty getting back to sleep, but that's sleep maintenance insomnia. And then there's an early morning awakening complaint where somebody is potentially waking up earlier than their desired time for the day and unable to get back to sleep. Those are three problems linked into insomnia. 
And at any given time, uh, it's estimated that upwards of 30% of the population will experience one of these problems transiently, meaning a couple nights here or there. Okay. It is also estimated that 10% of the general population will meet full diagnostic criteria for insomnia disorder. So truthfully, Ollie, that's encouraging for me from a career stability standpoint, but it also really, really is sad because that's one-tenth of our population that is uh, experiencing poor sleep. And the reality is there's a lot of factors that are contributing to this, this rise in insomnia. And I think it has a lot to do with our modern world. I know that in America here, we're really bad about stress. We rush through our days, we're highly stressed, and then we just assume we're going to be able to turn off at the end of the day. And that's not how this works, right? We need to practice relaxation. We need to practice calmness and returning ourselves to a state of tranquility across the day to enhance our sleep ability at night. But the fact that we're moving so fast, rushing around and being stressed leads people to being very anxious and not really ready to enter a sleep state when they want to. And that can lead to sleep initiation problems for certain. And also that stress can creep into our sleep and lead to us waking up more than we desire and often have difficulty getting back to sleep, right? Those 2 a.m. awakenings when you start thinking about all the stressors of the next day, whether I'm going to say something stupid on a podcast appearance, those things are antithetical to me returning to sleep. So that contributes to our major issue with insomnia symptoms. The modern technology also contributes to negatively to our insomnia symptoms. Um, I'm not sure how extensive this has been covered on this podcast, but there's a lot of resources out there that um, artificial light is highly problematic, especially in the hours before our bedtime on our sleep ability and quality. And that has a lot to do with our circadian rhythm and the regulation of key hormones that play central roles in our ability to tap into sleep processes. Um, so the kind of um, saturation and the inability to escape the high prevalence of artificial lighting in our homes, and also the uh, prevalence, the prominence of social media, the convenience of these digital streaming devices now, uh, Netflix and things like that, who also make it extremely difficult to remove yourself from the uh, technology as they will just continue to play the next episode without you choosing to, negatively contributes to our ability to prioritize sleep but also hijacks our biology. And we can find ways to uh, manage that with blue light blocking glasses and um, you know filters on our computers. But the reality is what we really need to do is just find a digital divorce and remove ourselves from technology to prioritize sleep health, uh, to kind of reduce the likelihood of insomnia for you and for, at a population level. I think it's easier said than done, Ollie, but that's kind of the big thing there as well. Instead of finding uh, a magical answer, Let's kind of go back to our roots and think about what would be most useful there. So insomnia is, without a doubt, the most common clinical disorder outside of insufficient sleep syndrome. From there is your sleep disorder breathing. Uh, we talked a little bit about obstructive sleep apnea in the first part. Uh, sleep disorder breathing can occur for many different reasons. The two kind of main reasons that often occur, well, I guess allergies and sickness, can cause sleep disorder breathing in the transient. But the two main uh, disorders that often or causes are uh, sleep or the main is sleep apnea, but it's either in the form of obstruction or a central sleep apnea. And obstructive sleep apnea is generally a crowded airway where um, air pressure in and out continuously or at a different rate can resolve the issue and allow someone to breathe functionally throughout sleep 
to not disrupt sleep and achieve uh, good sleep quality. Uh, there's also less invasive techniques. Uh, weight loss is highly recommended as there's often a strong link between obesity and prevalence of obstructive sleep apnea. But we talked about positional therapy and things like that as well. And generally speaking, estimations will vary between cultures, race, uh, different locations, men and women, uh, but anywhere from about 20 to 35% of individuals in the general population are experiencing obstructive sleep apnea. And a lot of them are undiagnosed, which is a major problem. And I will share on behalf of my father, uh, if you have concern, go get diagnosed. And if they prescribe a CPAP, go ahead and use it. I was first certain he had moderate to severe sleep apnea for a long period of time. He denied me and would refuse to go get assessed. He finally went and got assessed, got a CPAP. And his response was, I never thought sleep could be this way. For most sedentary behavior and physical activity researchers, collecting the research data is one of the most frustrating steps of a project, especially as inefficient data collection steals too much of your precious time, causes unnecessary stress and hassle, and can easily derail progress of your project. This is why we devised a revolutionary new way to collect data. Introducing Fibian Sense Motion, the beginning of a new era. Fibian Sense Motion is a cutting edge next generation system that allows you to easily and remotely collect, store, and manage data. Our solution features a tiny, waterproof device that captures the sedentary behavior and physical activity data a mobile app for automatic uploading of the data from the device, and a cloud service for managing the data. Even better, all collected data is GDPR compliant, and you have access to automatically analyzed variables of activity types and raw three-axis accelerometer data. Don't compromise on the quality of your research or the project timeframes. Discover the convenience and power behind our solution at sense.fibian.com. That is S-E-N-S dot Fibian, created by researchers for researchers. So it's critically important. It has such widespread implications for um, not just your sleep on a given night, but your risk for cardiovascular disease, as well as neuroge neurodegenerative conditions like Alzheimer's disease and other forms of dementia. So really scary stuff, and this is one way that you can take control and have better influence on your long-term health. Central sleep apneas are more scary in my eyes. It's basically a disconnect between the brain telling uh, the respiratory system to breathe. Um, and we can see these differences when we hook you up to polysomnography and those sorts of measurement technique. That one's a little bit harder to treat, as you can imagine. Right now, there are some implants that can have some validity to kind of help with that process. But I think that's beyond the scope of where we're at today. And just generally speaking, two main problems or two main causes, of the main problem of sleep disorder breathing, we have obstructive sleep apnea and central sleep apnea. If you have any concern at all, please don't hesitate to get assessed. There's great resources out there. From there, we starting to get into like less common forms of sleep disorders. And generally speaking, we'll see parasomnias, which are kind of abnormal movements during sleep that can either occur in non-REM sleep or REM sleep. That's kind of how they're disentangled, if you will. And some that happen in non-REM sleep are things like somnambulism or sleepwalking. Um, but you can also have things like uh, nightmare disorder can also happen during that period as well. 
Um, nightmares aren't just specific to REM sleep. Um, but at the same time, you can have abnormal behaviors during REM sleep, such as REM behavior disorder, where people will actually act out their dreams. And this can be very, very uh, damaging if they have a bed partner. Obviously, they could turn if you're thinking you're in a boxing match with the Vander Holyfield or something and you turn and punch your partner. That's probably not a good thing, right? It's probably a bad thing. People will, there's people on record uh, driving certain distances and committing acts of crime without knowing because they're still sleeping. Uh, that's generally more of a somnambulism and non-REM thing. But you can see how these abnormal behaviors during sleep are not great. Uh, REM behavior disorder is often uh, generally in the context too of a neurodegenerative condition like Parkinson's disease or um, Alzheimer's disease as well. So you will see this as a kind of proxy into other problems of sleep and basically what it, or problems with health. And basically what happens is during REM sleep, we're supposed to experience a paralysis of our muscles called muscle atonia. But for some reason, these people that are experiencing this condition don't have that muscle atonia. So they're acting out their dreams. And you can see how that uh, arose in our physiology to protect us, but clearly can have some disconnect at certain points. Um, so if you have any concerns about that, or if you've noticed some abnormal movements like that, uh, definitely seek out the care from a uh, sleep physician specifically, as they will know the best techniques. You may need to go see a neurologist, things like that as well for more comprehensive care or understanding. There are less severe kind of abnormal movements during sleep, things like restless leg syndrome and periodic limb movement disorder that can be really effectively managed through physical activity for one, uh, but also through medications as well. Um, and restless leg syndrome is kind of a more severe form of periodic limb movement disorder and a more common one as well, if you will. I think anywhere from 10 to 15% of the population will have a complaint about restless legs interfering with their sleep. Um, so... Generally speaking, this can be due to many different reasons. Actually, we also see it in uh, elite athletes a lot, those that have uh, high activity levels. So it's not just low sedentation, right? It can be both, um, but also it can be due to an iron deficiency. So there's often some concern with vegetarian diets that this can have a higher likelihood for restless leg syndrome. And there is some research and support there. Uh, but generally speaking, these things... Um, can negatively influence your sleep quality, can cause you to wake up during the night, but can be effectively treated through some lifestyle changes or some medications as well. And I think an area that I'd love to spend, you know, a decent amount of time drawing attention to, because they're often neglected in my eyes, is the um, hypersomnias. And the International Classification of Sleep Disorders uh, has this umbrella term called Central Disorders of Hypersomnolence. And that's basically... Um, these disorders that produce hypersomnolence, which I'll discuss in a second, unpack, uh, that are thought to arise from the brain, a dysfunction in the brain. So hypersomnolence itself is a symptom, and it broadly captures excessive daytime sleepiness that occurs despite sufficient sleep duration. So people sleeping longer than seven hours per night, it cannot be attributed to insufficient sleep. And it's often not a uh, attributed to situations that can be explained by insomnia or obstructive sleep apnea. So hypersomnolence. People with insomnia and obstructive sleep apnea can experience excessive daytime sleepiness. That can often be a residual consequence, but it's not hypersomnolence because there's a different cause between that. 
Central disorders of hypersomnolence, the most common are, or people are most familiar, are narcolepsy and idiopathic hypersomnia. But there's also something called Klein-Levin syndrome uh, that's really fascinating where people will go through these long periods of time, two weeks or so, of sleeping upwards of 22 to 23 hours a day. Uh, and it's a really fascinating and, and challenging condition. Uh, but for the sake of today, I'm just going to focus on kind of narcolepsy and idiopathic hypersomnia. So narcolepsy and idiopathic hypersomnia are considered uh, relatives, if you will. Uh, narcolepsy is broken down into two forms, narcolepsy type 1 and narcolepsy type 2. And most people are uh, familiar with narcolepsy type 1, where people have these very observable cataplectic episodes where their muscles just give out on them. And it's often in response to an extreme emotional stressor or um, just an extreme emotional response or physical exertion. And it's a well-established and well-known pathophysiology where it's linked to an orexin or hypocretin deficiency in the brain. It's, it's a really uncommon condition. I think it affects upwards of 0.001% of the population, uh, but it's a really debilitating condition and really understudied and underappreciated. And what's really crazy is that the average uh, delay in diagnosis for someone who eventually receives the diagnosis of narcolepsy is about 15 years, meaning that 15 years after symptoms onset is when they actually receive the diagnosis and start receiving treatment. And that's a major problem. So clearly we need to do things better to uh, better educate the population on this to get the resources they need, but also do better to detect at a quicker pace and, and um, connect people to care. Narcolepsy type 1, again, has a well-established biology that leads to these blurred boundaries between sleep and wake. Uh, so we see a lot of sleep fragmentation in narcolepsy, meaning that people will wake up a lot throughout the night uh, and have low sleep efficiency. And we see things called sleep stage instability, meaning that when they enter the deeper stages of sleep, they're more likely to quickly leave that deeper stage of sleep. It's almost like their sleep-wake switch is kind of in a loose state at all times, rather than being tightened on one or the other when we want it to be. Narcolepsy type 2 is more complicated, and it's unclear at this time if this is a real condition or not. Um, it shares a lot of similar features to narcolepsy type 1, such as a sleep fragmentation, but you often don't have the complaint of cataplexy. And you are often in a kind of within normal limits range for your orexin or hypocretin levels. So it's unclear what it is, but they share very similar overlaps with other symptoms such as uh, hallucinations on kind of ends of boundaries of sleep and kind of this pervasive excessive daytime sleepiness that occurs and these pervasive sleep attacks that occur as well. I'll stop there right th on that one and just transition to idiopathic hypersomnia because this is where the field's at right now is this uncertainty of whether narcolepsy type 2 and idiopathic hypersomnia are not just one of the same disorder on a spectrum. So idiopathic hypersomnia is basically you're extremely sleepy and we have no idea why. People, the diagnostic criteria is that these individuals are sleeping upwards of 11 hours across a 24-hour period and they do not uh, achieve restoration from their sleep. And they do not achieve restoration from daytime naps at all. In fact, they're more problematic and harmful. And that's actually a distinguishing characteristic between hypersomnia, idiopathic hypersomnia, and narcolepsy, where persons with narcolepsy can use naps to manage their sleepiness. Persons with idiopathic hypersomnia actually get sleepier from a nap of any duration. And again, idiopathic, without known origin. So these people are sleeping long periods of time, 
and yet I have a non-restorative sleep complaint. So a major hypothesis was that, okay, they must have very fragmented sleep. Well, the research that's come out of our laboratory, uh, Dr. Plant's laboratory and some that I've produced suggests the exact opposite, that they have highly consolidated sleep. And based on the variables we use right now to capture sleep continuity, the, the continuous nature of your sleep, there's no difference between them and those deemed healthy controls, whatever a healthy control is. Um, and I think that's really fascinating. But that doesn't mean we should stop and just draw a line in the sand and say, okay, we don't know why you're sleepy, right? Um, right now, we haven't been able to detect anything. And some of my research for my dissertation is purpose to better understand alterations, abnormalities during sleep at a more granular level that may explain why somebody with idiopathic hypersomnia might be sleepy. I'm not necessarily unearthing the pathophysiology, but just trying to find some characteristics in that area. But for me, Ollie, the question becomes, what lifestyle factors have contributed to a person reaching this state of sleepiness? Because as a trainee in clinical psychology, I fully embrace kind of a plasticity across the lifespan perspective. I don't really embrace the notion that complex phenotypes or complex outcomes can be largely explained by genetic underpinnings. I think that the epigenetic changes that occur, which are in response to our lifestyle, so the epigenetic changes for those listeners out there are basically changes on our DNA that turn on and off different expression of your DNA. And that comes from your lived experiences, also your parents' lived experiences. That's really complicated. But I generally think that's going to shed more insight into why these people are sleepy rather than finding which genetic associations are related to these long sleepers that are not deriving restoration. And when we start looking at that area, we can start getting a sense of, okay, is it due to sedentation? Is it due to things they're eating? Those types of lifestyle factors that get me excited from a kind of cognitive behavioral standpoint of interventions that we can actually bring to their life that not just manage symptoms, but remit symptoms. Because right now there is no psychological or psychotherapy uh, adjunct that can remit symptoms for any sort of hypersomnia. And I think that's insufficient. And I want to die on this hill, if you will, uh, where I want to plant my research flag going forward to try and find uh, ways to intervene for individuals to make them less sleepy and have control over their day-to-day -day life, right? And to function better. But the reality, Ollie, is this is a very, very heterogeneous condition. The way we are classifying people right now, it brings in a big, broad-spanning group of individuals that likely differ on how this condition developed. So it's not going to be for every person with idiopathic hypersomnia. It's due to a certain type of dietary habit or due to because of the uh, sedentary lifestyle you've lived up to this point, and thus your body's adapted and is basically been like, well, if you don't need me to use these wake resources, I'm not going to turn them on and I'm going to prioritize all these other resources instead. Um, but it's probably a combination for most, and it's finding which ones uh, for which people can be utilized to improve their quality of life. Uh, and that's where I think some of the work that you're doing with your uh, kind of commercial group and, and bridging that into research as well can be helpful in better characterizing these people. Because right now we don't know much about their day-to-day -day life. Uh, we just know that it's very challenging. 
It creates major difficulty to function occupationally, socially, academically, uh, to hold any sort of relationship or responsibility. And right now, the best strategy we have for intervention is more or less to give them stimulants, amphetamines to assist in their day-to-day life. And thankfully, there was a recent uh, FDA-approved drugs to help improve the stability of their sleep at night, bridging off of narcolepsy findings. Um, But now there's an FDA medication to potentially enhance the sleep quality. But I think we can do more. And there's certain strategies like intermittent fasting um, that I'm really interested in trying to explore as to whether that can, so to speak, wake up wake biology and kind of assist in remitting these symptoms with these individuals. So uh, I know uh, the listeners cannot see this, but Ollie has been attentively taking notes this entire time during my long uh, ramble. So I will pause here and give Ollie the microphone to see if there's anything he would like to follow up on. Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Research Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcast or whichever app you use. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes, so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.